Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but today, of course, we are absolutely delighted for the debut book by Elizabeth Ross. Um, such a great opportunity to be able to host a launch here for a new writer. Um, I'm sure we'll get to welcome you back with many more books. Um, she is an LA local by way of Montreal and Glasgow, Scotland. Um, and, you know, being here at the bookstore, I get people asking me all the time, what should I read? And I pick up the book and I say, I read this one because of this and this and this. And with this book, the premise is so utterly gripping, you instantly want to read more. It's um, such a delight to be, able to, um, to be able to present something like this that I know will find audiences everywhere. Um, I, so I looked through the reviews, and this is what the people who have already read it had to say. They say, it is delectable. It is resonant, elegant, and ripe with satisfaction. It is highly entertaining, touching, and fun, full of strong female characters driven by the pursuit of their dreams. Let's give a warm round of applause to Elizabeth Ross. And now before she comes up here... We are going to give you a little multimedia presentation. So before we hear her read, let's first be awed by her book trailer. <laughs> if it loads up. I'm here to press play for you.
All right, come on, you're dying to read it. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Um, before I begin, I just want to thank everyone who was involved with the trailer. Um, so our wonderful actresses, Jordi and Andrea, are here. They were amazing. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, our DP, Yanni Samaras, was amazing. Huge talent. We were lucky to have him. Um, <laughs> uh, all Shane's friends from DreamWorks who volunteered. Campbell, see you. Thank you. Um, my, my cousin who's in Vancouver, uh, Ailey McAllister, who did the costume design and also the set design. Um, and who else? Chris Russell, our amazing producer, of course. And Emily, his lovely fiance, who did craft and standby painting. <laughs> and then, I hope I haven't missed anyone, but also, and most of all, my husband, Shane, who directed it. <laughs> And did the amazing uh, visual effects and animation. So thanks, Shane. Don't hate me when <laughs> I made you work 12-hour days for a month to make my trailer. <laughs> so um, I guess I'm going to talk a little bit about the book. And um, then I guess we'll do a little Q&A if you've got any questions. And then after, we'll do the signing. So. Um, so first of all, thanks for coming. I hope everyone got some champagne and macarons. Um, basically, Belle Puck was inspired by a short story by Emile Zola called uh, Les Repoussoirs, which uh, translated means literally the repulsors. Um, and then in, in the English title is actually Rent a Foil. Um, so um, I was inspired to write after reading this book um, it's basically a story of ugly women for hire at this agency who are rented out as props, basically, to um, rich society women to make them look more attractive by comparison. So um, when I read the story, I was fascinated and also kind of horrified by this concept. Um, but what struck me is that it felt so utterly relevant to today's world in our culture obsessed with beauty. Um, it was this sort of biting satire. Um, and I think Zola's goal was to poke fun at the bourgeoisie, uh, to sort of reveal how they could make a profit from anything, even an ugly woman. Um, so I'm going to just share a little passage from. Oh. Can you hear me? Oh. Oh, that's worse. <laughs> My 12-year-old voice. Okay, um, so I'm going to share just a passage from the short story, Les Repoussoirs. Durando is an imaginative and original entrepreneur, a multimillionaire who has succeeded in turning business into an art. For many years, he's been bewailing the fact that no one had hitherto been able to make money out of ugly girls. As for pretty ones, trading in them is a tricky matter, and I can assure you that the idea of such a thing has never crossed his mind. He's rich enough to be able to afford scruples. One day, he received a sudden illumination from heaven. As with all great inventions, this brainwave sprang about quite unexpectedly into his head. He was walking along the boulevard one day when he saw two girls tripping along in front of him. One was pretty and one was ugly. And as he looked, the realization dawned on him that the ugly one was an adornment worn, as it were, by the pretty one. 
just as you buy ribbons and face powder and false plates. It was only right and proper, he said to himself, that the pretty one should buy the ugly one as an embellishment, a foil. So that was the inspiration for the book. But um, the story really focused a lot on Durando and the creation of the agency. And I was left with the unanswered question, what would it feel like to be one of these ugly girls for hire? Um, and that's really what led me to create the character of Maud and to write the novel. Um, you know, he did touch on it briefly uh, towards the end of the short story. But as I say, I was kind of left wanting more. It was just a, a brief paragraph, but this was kind of the pivotal um, moment that inspired uh, my novel. So I'll just read this short passage at the end. One day I may write the secret memoirs of a foil. I knew one such unfortunate girl whose sad tale was heartrending. Her customers were ladies of town known to everyone in Paris, and they treated her quite shamefully. Please, ladies, don't misuse your foils. Be kind towards the ugly ducklings without whose help you wouldn't even be pretty at all. This foil I knew was an emotional sort of girl whom I suspect of reading too much Walter Scott. I know nothing sadder than a hunchback in love or an ugly woman full of romantic ideals. The wretched girl kept falling in love with all the young men whose eyes were caught by her unfortunate face, which then led their attention on to her employer. It was like a mirror being in love with the larks, which it lures down within range of the huntsman's gun. She was terribly jealous of those women who bought her like a skin cream or a pair of boots. She was an object hired for so much an hour, and it so happened that this object had feelings. So. That's the inspiration. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I, I'm going to sort of bore you <laughs> for reading, but I was going to read some, some of my book, uh, just a couple of pages. And then if you want to think of any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. So are we, are we doing OK? <laughs> are you reading a lot? <laughs> it's very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, right, where is it going to begin? Okay, it's just two pages, so bear with me. <laughs> okay, the chorus of women's chatter rises as I approach the salon and nerves dance in my chest. I take a quick breath and push open the mahogany door. There must be at least 20 women and girls squeezed into the room. Every seat is taken. It's standing room only as I step around them to find a space. I feel conspicuous in the new dress. A couple of women give me sidelong glances. They can't be judging my outfit too harshly, for it looks like they've also been subjected to Madame LaRue's handiwork. I'm uncertain where I should position myself until a pudgy, red-faced woman gives me a smile. I smile back noting that her putrid mustard-colored dress is worse than mine. I stand beside her. Maybe by comparison, I look less terrible. A trill of laughter turns my attention to the door. Durando enters with two rich-looking society ladies, and a hush falls over the room. My new colleagues freeze and remain motionless, staring into the distance. 
I study the rich ladies who look like dolls, painted, perfect, and delicate, at home only in a well-furnished room. They walk among us slowly and with a deliberate ease. One lady is wearing a striking black and white dress. Her dark hair is rolled in a tight chignon. Her expression is self-satisfied, the cat that got the cream. The other lady's gown is iridescent pink like the lining of a shell. She has an easy laugh and keeps catching her reflection in the mirror over the fireplace. Durando scampers between them like an excited spaniel. Madame Barry, Durando addresses the lady in pink. I have just the thing for you this week. He draws her attention to a woman with a hook nose and pointy chin. This one's severe profile will greatly accentuate your perfect proportions. Madame Barry steps towards my unattractive colleague, scrutinizing her closely. Durando turns to the lady in black and white. Countess Dubarn, your fine eyes would captivate next to the piggy eyes of this one. I flinch at Durando's words. The countess merely flashes a smile at his suggestion. The salon woman remains stoic, and I'm shocked. Why don't they, result, why don't they react to these insults? Madame Barry, the countess, calls to her friend. Look at me with this one. What do you think? Better than the one I rented last week? Oh, they're both so hideous I can't decide. Although maybe the piggy one shows off your figure better. <laughs> that unwelcome thought is pushing through again, panicked. I scan the room, taking in the faces of my new colleagues until it hits me. The women differ in age, height, shape, and coloring, but they do share one common characteristic. They are all, without exception, extremely unattractive, some outright ugly. My cheeks blaze, my heart combusts with the shame at the realization that I am one of them. That's it. So, I should have set that up and said, this is from chapter one, where Maud <laughs> goes to the agency for an interview and doesn't know what the job is for. So, <laughs> da, da, da. anyway, um, does anyone have any questions? Yes, Leela? I did. Um, I went for about 10 days um, a couple years ago, but to be honest, I drew from experience. Um, I was an au pair in Paris when I was 18, actually for a family called Dubern. <laughs> and uh, so I drew from uh, that experience of being a teenager in Paris, because yeah, I was only 18 and had to deal with two precocious French brats <laughs> and, and their parents. Um, and then when I was in, in university, I spent a year in France, in Brittany, and so my character's from Brittany. So, but yeah, no, but the research trip was nice too. <laughs> Any other questions? Kristen? That's a good question. I think it definitely helped being a film editor to write a, a novel. Um, particularly from the point of view of story structure. Um, and also, I think, to be able to think visually and to be used to changing things a lot <laughs> and, take, and taking notes well. Um, I think also, when you're a film editor, you start, especially documentary, you start with a bunch of footage and you kind of have to create the story out of 
you know, hours and hours of footage of someone's life. So um, it's definitely a challenge in the same way that you have to find the story from your imagination in, uh, in writing. So I think just taking something from nothing and turning it into something uh, and having faith that you can do that um, despite the challenges. So yeah, it helped, I think. Good question. <laughs> Anyone else? Um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. It took a while, definitely. Um, how long did it take? I mean, I think, yeah, definitely a few drafts and some input from my editor and my amazing critique group who are here tonight. <laughs> um, and just kind of that feeling of having to unlock the story, knowing that something wasn't quite working and uh, sort of persisting until until you felt it was right. But I had the help of a great editor who sort of saw me through this whole process. So I was lucky. Yeah. Yeah, question? Historical, you know, I almost feel for me historical would be easier than to write a contemporary American teenager because I didn't grow up here, so I, that would take a lot of research for me. Like, I don't know what homeroom is or uh, <laughs> a sophomore, or I don't even know what age you are in grade nine. Like, it would um, that would require research, but I think the voice in historical. I mean, I tried to keep her still relatable. Um, and, and I didn't want the feeling that it felt, you know, stuffy and, you know, that there was distance between uh, the reader and the, and the main character and the voice. So I'm not sure. Hopefully, hopefully I managed that. But um, I think with historical, there's a temptation that people might think it's kind of, oh, it's boring or it's history, it's facts. But... You're not relating to historical events so much as you're relating to the character. The character comes first. So Maud, my character, came first, and then I created the historical events, framing her story after. So I think an emotional connect connection with the characters is key to making historical come alive. <laughs> yeah, Amy? Yes, I'm working on um, a second standalone, so not related to Bella Park, and it's uh, set in 1940s Hollywood, and it's going to be kind of a film noir mystery. So it doesn't have a title yet, um, but yeah, and that's it's fun to not be in 19th century Paris. <laughs> um, but no research trips because I live here, so. Any other questions? Yeah, at the back. That's a good question. I think Maud just came pretty early on because it seemed kind of a, a dowdy plain name. Um, and then Isabel, well, actually, the woman I au paired for in Paris was called Isabel DuBaron. I hope. <laughs> I don't know. It, but I hope she doesn't mind. <laughs> it's not, but Isabel is very different from, from that woman. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't know. Uh, 
think you just try a name on for size, and then and if it doesn't if it doesn't quite work, you you keep brainstorming. But it's kind of um, just a gut feeling picking a name, like you know when it's right. Yep. Anyone else? Um, yeah, the friendship for me is really one of the key elements of the story, even though it's kind of been touted as a bit of a romance. For me, the love story in a way is the friendship, and that takes center stage more than the guy in the book, even though there is there is romance. Um, and I just think um, in young adult, maybe we could see more strong female friendship stories because you know, I know I have amazing girlfriends, and especially at that time, being an adolescent, I think you really rely on your friends. So, um, yeah. Any other? Yeah? Good question. Um, I think, well, obviously, the obsession with beauty and the kind of explosion of advertising sort of happened in the Belle Epoque. And obviously, that's very part, that's part of our culture today. Um, what else? In a way, setting something in the past is kind of an excuse to maybe comment on today's society, but through a different lens, maybe in the way science fiction or fantasy does. It's our world, but it's not our world. So I think what the differences I appreciated that helped my characters were just the stakes were really high because the divide between rich and poor and the classes and then the gender uh, divide, you know, there was a lot fewer options open to women then. So those higher stakes helped the drama for my characters. But definitely, it was a way to kind of spotlight the issue, um, the theme of beauty, and uh, you know, the sort of insistence that girls have to be pretty before anything else. You know, so, yep. Um, you know, I've never written uh, a novel for grown-ups, but. For me, in a way, you know, this is a book I wanted to read when I was 16, when I was a young adult, but it's also a book I would read now. So I think I wrote it for any age group, and hopefully it translates, because it resonates, I think, for young women, not, and not so young, <laughs> in, their, in their 30s. Um, so I think... I mean, definitely, I think the difference for young young adult between young adult and uh, grown-up fiction is um, the main character has to be a young adult, an adolescent, and the issues dealt with in the book are issues that teens would be going through, whether it's first love or you know finding your voice, like this book. It's it's those sort of perennial uh, issues that come up a lot when you're a teenager. But yeah, hopefully, anyone of any age can enjoy the book. <laughs> Yeah, Jason? Oh, um, well, actually, uh, we made it ourselves. The publisher didn't make it. Um, no, well, I sent it to them uh, to get their feedback, and they loved it. 
I should. <laughs> so I think uh, we ha they had a, like a suggestion. My editor said, oh, maybe we could just sh shorten up a bit. And we took out a title card. But they were delighted with it. And uh, no wonder, because Shane did an amazing job. <laughs> and I edited it. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think they were happy with it. Yeah. Any other questions? Should we have more macarons and champagne? <laughs> well, thank you. This has been not as terrifying as I thought. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.